It is September 9th. Welcome to our currently untitled podcast where law students discuss law review articles. I'm Tony Fernando, and I'm joined today by Courtney Bucor, Naigla Graves-Mans, and Shenley Kent. Um, if we go ahead and have people introduce uh, themselves, let's start on my screen uh, with Shenley. Hi, everybody. I'm Shenley Kent, um, 1L student at Dickinson Law. I live in Harrisburg, PA. And I'm actually originally from the area, so uh, Dickinson isn't really that far for me to commute to. Okay. And uh, Naila? Hey, I'm Naila Gravesmans. I'm a 1L as well at Dickinson Law, and I'm from Brooklyn, and I'm now in central Pennsylvania. And I'm just going to be listening in today and gathering information from my co-podcasters, Sociology. We're glad to have you. Uh, and lastly, Courtney? Hi, I'm Courtney Beekler. I'm also 1L, originally from South Dakota. And I'm just really excited to see where this podcast discussion goes. So thanks, Tony, for putting this together. Okay. Um, reminder that opinions uh, here are those of the panelists do not represent the view of Penn State Dickinson Law, present or former employers of our panelists, or any other entity. Contents of this recording do not constitute legal advice. The article we're discussing today is by Andrea Trout, The 1500-Hour Rule, When Does Quantity Outweigh Quality, from the Journal of Air Law and Commerce in 2019. The article was picked by me to start us out since it covers a topic I know something about, and I thought this article did a reasonably good job of laying out background so people could have an opinion even if the subject was new to them. So our first question, um, all law review articles are peer-reviewed, but sometimes authors have special qualifications that are relevant to the topic. Did the author here have any type of special qualifications that are relevant? Let's start with Shenley. Well, I, I think that, I mean, I, I wasn't exactly sure what, what her qualifications were, but just reading um, the article, um, it definitely seems that she has some type of familiarity um, with the airline industry, um, either, um, I think, uh, they call it working above wing as a pilot or something like that. Mm -hmm. So um, just kind of reading that, and um, it definitely seemed like she was an advocate, um, you know, for... Um, kind of not abolishing, but probably mitigating the 1,500-hour um, training requirement. Um, so again, I wasn't exactly sure, you know, like if she was a pilot directly or, or what her experience her experience was, but I felt like the article was definitely well-researched and well-written. Um, I enjoyed reading it. Okay. Um, that point that she was kind of an advocate for one side on this, that's going to be important as we go further because unlike kind of scientific articles, uh, well, even scientific articles, sometimes for law review articles sometimes often have a point of view that they're advocating for. Um, and, you know, I agree that uh, this author uh, knows something about aviation. I think her biographical note said that she has a master's in aviation from Purdue. So, um, you know, certainly somebody who can speak on the subject, uh, you know, from some experience. One article, uh, one aspect of the article I liked was the broad history of commercial aviation. Uh, many of us at school fly frequently or have in the past. Um, are are y'all nervous about flying? Were you aware that co-pilots on regional airliners were not paid very much, maybe $20,000, not so distant past. And do y'all remember the Colgan crash? Uh, this time, let's go to Courtney. Um, you know, I 
don't recall the crash itself. Um, but then once I started looking up outside of this article, some of the details, um, based on the timeline, I remember it being a point of discussion. I just never understood the specifics or even the outcome ramifications that we saw that came out of the, that crash specifically. Um, and if you had ever asked me if I knew what Colgan Air was, <laughs> I would not have recognized that company name. Um, but no, I don't think um, as far as being aware of, you know, the, the pilots being underpaid or overly worked, um, I guess those are things I never really considered. And I'm what I would consider a frequent traveler. Um, I think it would be just as alarming if we knew how many hours surgeons were awake between operations. Uh, and I, I guess some of those things are things that you don't you don't sit back and think about as a user until something goes wrong. And then you really, it causes pause. Okay. Shanley, um, anything on this? I was actually, I had some uh, type of awareness about uh, regional air airlines and how they operate as far as like staffing goes, because I used to work at the Harrisburg airport and that was probably one of the worst jobs I've ever had in my life. Um, I, I worked as a, a gate agent and, um, you know, when I saw the job posted, I thought, oh, this will be a great job. You know, there's free travel benefits. Like I could travel the world for free. And I, I just thought that it was going to be amazing. But, um, once I got to work at the airport, I just realized how overworked everyone was, not just the pilots or the flight attendants, but also the people working the ramp or people working the, the front, um, the tickets or, you know, the, you know, rebooking and things like that, because there's such a high level of turnover. Um, you know, everybody's always working very short staff and very stretched thin, and they would mandate people to work all the time. So even if you were scheduled to be off on a day, like they would put you on a schedule and if you wouldn't show up, like they would write you up. And so that also contributed to there being a high level of turnover because, you know, they were mandating people to work, but, you know, you're like, well, I already have plans. And they're like, well, if you don't show up, we want to write you up. So people would just be like, I quit. So as I was working there, I got to um, know and uh, form personal relationships with a lot of the flight crew because a lot of them lived in crash pads close to the airport. Um, and, and again, that's, that's how I found out how, you know, how much debt the, the regional um, pilots were in, um, you know, the requirements that they had. But just also like the operations of it, like they were very, um, the pilots, the first officers and everything, like they were very strict. And like, if, even if they were just like waiting around to be called, you know, if we were all going out for a beer, they were like, no, I'm, I'm absolutely not drinking because, you know, there's a chance that I might be called to work tomorrow morning at six o'clock, even though it's like 6 p.m. at that point. Like they were very, you know, cognizant of the safety measures that they had to take. Um and again, I knew that these people were only making probably like $18 an hour and like over $100,000 in debt to be, to have this job that they really, you know, cared about and wanted. And it just really didn't pay that much. The, the cream of the crop was getting called to what they call like main line, being a pilot, a pilot for like Delta or like American and not these regional airlines, but it was so hard to get those jobs. You had to take the regional jobs in order as a stepping stone for those, that next step. Um, I, you used a term in there um, for those who are not aviation industry or um, aware crash pad. Um, can you describe what that is just a little bit? So the crash pad was basically, um, it was like a house where several 
people in the airline industry lived and they, they would uh, rent like beds. So it would be like a townhouse, maybe like a three or four bedroom townhouse, but it would have like 10 people living there at any given time. And so, uh, you know, they one person would rent the house, but they had, you know, like pilots, flight attendants, and then even people from the airline industry, like the gate agents and stuff that worked there. It was like kind of like a little frat house. Um, and again, it, it's very... Um, I guess the close, like even when you get to bigger airports, like somewhere in like Newark or JFK, um, you know, those are, uh, that that's premium real estate. So that's a lot more as opposed to like uh, the Middletown airport here in Harrisburg, where, you know, they would probably pay $150 for like a bunk bed or something like that. But uh, yeah. And Nayla, um, what's your experience flying? Um, well, I, um, I, had a job where I covered the whole Southeast. So I would fly um, at least once a week. And I did that from like, I don't know, throughout the early, like the first 10 years of 2000 to 2002, so maybe like 2010. And so I was always on the plane and I um, flew multiple airlines. So I became a pro mm-hmm. at who was the best airline, who had the best perks. Um, and then most recently, um, one of the major airlines became my client as I did corporate relocation. And I'm not going to disclose who they were. But I will tell you this, is that the corporate structure and the climate at this major airline was amazing. And they promoted from within. And it was a totally different perspective that I gained after working with them behind the scenes than traveling with them a decade prior and a decade prior, I never wanted to fly with them. They had a horrible, um, well, to me, um, customer service policy, but now when I fly with them, it's fabulous. It's actually one of the top ones within the country. And without sharing much information, there was structure changes within the leadership that made it a different experience from a decade ago until now. But I've always known that pilots will get paid about like 50, 60K. So it wasn't, you know, they weren't in the six digits, which you would think they would be in the six digits given all the responsibility they have. Um, okay. My own experience, I flew for Everett's Air Cargo up in Alaska. Um, I did start there as a flight engineer, and then I was a first officer. But that was a little bit different because flying in Alaska, there's a little bit of a premium for working in Alaska. Um, and the work tended to be out and back rather than the three- and four-day trips that, that the, the crews of these types of regional airlines um, are, are flying where they have to um, kind of persist. I do remember when the Colgan crash happened. Um, we're talking about Colgan 3407. And we were, um, we ended up listening to the ATC tapes um, pretty soon after that accident. And, and then, of course, read the accident reports uh, once they were out. Um, there were a number of kind of allegations made about the flight crews that the, the first officer on that uh, aircraft had uh, been fatigued um, and allegations about the quality of the captain on that flight. Um, he had had uh, some uh, problems in his training, in his background. 
After that Colgan crash, there were uh, two types of changes that were made. Um, so there was the 1,500-hour rule, which is what the article discusses most of. But then there was also a, a move towards safety management systems and fatigue management systems. Uh, anybody want to speak to what those sy system changes are before we get to the 1,500-hour rule itself? And I'm seeing shaking heads. Um, the uh, 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 safety management systems are systems that, um, like Naila said, are kind of industry-led. They're ways of databasing um, safety issues and um, accident or potential accident-causing things. They involve things like anonymous reporting of safety conditions, um, so that a flight crew that realizes you know some a, some procedure is off can push that up into management to get it changed uh, without having an accident and in a a way that doesn't kind of point fingers backwards at them. But the big portion of the article talked about the 1500 rule, and this was somewhat unique in aviation regulation. Normally, uh, Congress directs the FAA to conduct a public rulemaking process when they want a new type of aviation regulation. In ASPIA, they directed a rulemaking process, but the act of Congress specifically said 1500 hours uh, as the rule. Should Congress direct an agency to enact a technical requirement like this rather than asking the industry, regulatory agency, or other stakeholders what the requirement should be? And what would be the advantage to the Congress specifying the, that rule? And what would be the downside? And feel free to draw on experience from other fields. Um, start with Courtney, because I know you have some experience in the medical field. Yeah, so I think um, really quickly, if it's okay to revert back to one of the previous the half sure. part of the previous question, um, you had given us ahead of time, had discussed whether or not the uh, changes to the system or uh, experience requirements actually address the problems that existed. Mm -hmm. And um, quite frankly, I'm not sure that they do. I think that a lot of it kind of addresses the symptoms, um, specifically the 1500 rule. So it addresses a symptom of fatigue, but getting back to the Colgan Air, I mean, you just specifically had mentioned that the training requirements were not met. Um, so I'm not sure then to tie this into the next part of who should actually have that authority. Um, I would be concerned that stakeholders who have a literal profit to be made by some of these decisions are the best when it comes to things like airline flights that affect commercial users. Um, as somebody who has no understanding of, of how federal aviation requirements exist, um, is it up to me to find which airline, whether it be one major airline over another, that has better training or better um, uh, rules in place if it's not federally regulated by a separate agency. Um, so I guess in that regard, as a user, I would be more comfortable with it being something that's um, coming from a federal agency standpoint. Uh, but I'm not the business owner. So in that regard, maybe that's where they would prefer to have some of their own uh, from a stakeholder perspective. Do you think that a consumer is capable of making a determination on safety between airlines? 
right off the bat, no. I mean, there would have to be there would have to be some form of education for that consumer. Um, so to just tomorrow transition to the onus is on the consumer to have an understanding. I don't think that anything exists as of right now that would allow them to do that. Shanoi, what are your thoughts? Um, well, I was thinking that um, with the self-reporting, I mean, uh, the system, I, again, I think it, it, it's um, kind of like an honor system where it's kind of taking everybody at their word. And, um, you know, really, um, I, I mean, I, I know that pushing the safety measures is very important. And like I was saying, with, uh, work, with, when I was working at the airport and I had those relationships with the pilots and everything, like they were very... Um, uh, they were very cognizant of what they were doing, making sure that they had enough rest and that they had there was a, enough time uh, between their flight and rest period. They took it very seriously, but I'm not necessarily sure that I, I would be able to trust that type of self-reporting. Um, I do think that having some type of government oversight um, would uh, kind of at least put that level uh, for consumer protection there. Um, but I also felt like, you know, in, in the article, the um, author, you know, she she stresses that, uh, you know, flying is safer than driving in a car, using, you know, going on a train. And I, and I, I do think that that is um, communicated to a lot of people. You know, a lot of people are flying. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of you know, people travel all the time, even in this period of a, a global pandemic, people are still flying. Um, so I, I don't know. I think that, again, I think that there should be the government oversight, but again, you also have to take into consideration, um, the organization, their bottom line, their costs and, you know, things like that. So I think that if there could be like a hybrid approach, that would probably be the best, best way to do it. I don't necessarily know, um, about the self-reporting. I'm not sure that I, when I read that, I was kind of surprised and I was just like, that's, you know, really like an honor code or an honor system. And you really just have to take people at their word and trust that they're being truthful and earnest with the information that they're reporting. That's a good point. Um, that That is a good point that it's an honor system and we have to hope that our pilots are, are reporting what they need to report. Um, does anybody have any thoughts about whether that 1500 our rule. Now, the author noted that there are some modifications to that 1,500-hour rule for uh, graduates of certain collegiate flying programs and was kind of advocating for even further reductions. Uh, speaking for myself, um, I was working as a commercial pilot, and I had an associate's degree, but it was in biology. Um, so I was never personally in favor of those. Uh, and other guys who fly in Alaska would tell you that it you know, they would feel that it's the flying in Alaska that makes you a good pilot, not anything that came before. Uh, but of course, we're biased. Um, does that concept of having accredited aviation programs and allowing those graduates to fly with fewer hours make sense? Um, anybody? I was going to say that I, I I agree with what you're saying, Anthony, about, um, you know, like if you fly in Alaska, you know, that kind of puts you in a better position because um, I, I don't know. I mean, like, I, I think you need the actual experience of flying as opposed to the classroom experience. Like um, to me, the on the job training will probably be more beneficial 
um, for a pilot, you know, putting them in the air and having to make those decisions, um, you know, under that type of pressure, uh, I think would be a better tangible experience instead of being in a classroom and reading from a book. Anthony, let me ask you a question. Um, Are you saying you were a pilot, correct? Yes. So do any of the airlines have pilot training programs where, yeah, go ahead. So that actually changed, um, and it's it's been a little bit cyclical. When I got my commercial uh, pilot certificate in 2007, there was kind of a surplus of pilots. Um, so there were more people who wanted to work as pilots than um, than could get jobs, right? Um, I actually ended up in Alaska because as I was going from airport to airport trying to trying to find a job, one of the old guys at the airport goes, uh, you know, there's there's always jobs in Alaska, but you have to actually go there and apply in person. And he was right. Um, so that's how I ended up up there. But um, after this rule was implemented um, and a large wave of retirements started to hit, uh, there became a pilot shortage. So as recently as two years ago, these regional airlines like Colgan that contract to fly as you know United Express or Delta Connection, um, they were offering up to $80,000 signing bonuses to anybody who was qualified to hold the certificate, and then they would train train them into their procedures, you know, uh, right away. Um, we also saw after the ASPIA went into place, um, we saw partnerships start to form between flight training schools and some of the regional airlines. So if you would go to this flight training school, uh, they would train you, they would make you an instructor, they would get you your hours, and then you would just kind of flow into that regional airlines uh, pipeline and you would learn to fly ERJ 700 or, or whatever jet that they were, they were flying. Um, we have not seen in the United States, uh, but we have seen in Europe what they call Abinito training programs, where you could get hired without a pilot license at all by somebody like uh, Cathay Pacific, you know, big international airlines, and they would train you from zero hours all the way up to, you know, to being a pilot um, on on those airliners. Um, European aviation, um, Asia, Asia Pacific aviation is a little bit different culturally than domestic um, aviation is. Uh, but, uh, you know, if you go back far enough to when there was a pilot shortage before um, in like the 1930s, you, you would see the same thing. So, um, so there are businesses respond to the regulatory structure and, and how many pilots are available. Shanley? I have a question for you, Anthony, yeah. um, since you brought that up. Um, is, I guess kind of a two-fold question. If the companies would, um, you know, kind of like solicit to bring on pilots and train them up, is it with the expectation that they will work for them? And then also, like, if a pilot would, say, work for a logistics company, do they still have the same type of requirements or is it just for a commercial airline? Um, so the FAA does not make a distinction between um, – you know, all cargo airlines like FedEx or UPS and um, passenger airlines like Delta or, or Colgan or, or whatever, they all have to meet the same safety standards. The pilots have to be licensed to the same standards. There, there are some technical caveats to that, um, but, but they're not that important. Um, 
when you're talking about hiring pilots early on, uh, generally, um, if an airline is training you, um, generally, not always, uh, you're expected to sign a, um, it, it's, it's called a training contract, but it says basically, I will work for you for the next two years. And if I quit or I go somewhere else, I'm going to pay you back the prorated cost of the training that you gave me. Um, a lot of airlines don't do that. Generally, the better airlines don't do that. But uh, it's kind of understood that if somebody's training you into a new rating, um, you continue to work for them. <laughs> so, Anthony, um, to ask you another question, when they're training a pilot, and let's say it's a major airline or even um, a regional airline, it, am I going up in air with someone in training just comparative like to a doctor in residency who is allowed to do surgery on me because they're being trained uh a doctor in residency is a good analogy um so if you're flying from you know harrisburg to charlotte those pilots are fully licensed. Okay, they have been through simulators for that aircraft. They've been learned. They've learned on all the procedures. Um, but if it is a new pilot as first officer, there will be a, a captain who is trained as an instructor, who is the pilot in command, uh, supervising him, just like a doctor in residency. Um, you know, has an attending surgeon who is watching what he's doing and making sure that everything is being done correctly. So I just wonder, um, should that be disclosed to passengers? You know, you're flying at risk. Well, I don't know if it would be at risk, but there's a possibility that the person that will be leading your flight, flying you, has very few hours. If Go ahead. The person who may be manipulating the so normally uh, the flight crews will swap legs. So, like if we're talking about a flight from Harrisburg to Charlotte, um, you know, and I'm the captain, um, you know, I would fly to Charlotte, and then I would have my co-pilot fly. As far as meaning meaning physically manipulate the controls, uh, fly from Charlotte back to Harrisburg, but the captain is fully responsible for both directions of flight so um you know they tend to um take that very seriously right anything that goes wrong it falls on his license um or her license and um that segues a little bit so this 1500 hour rule uh, that they enacted could that have prevented the colgan crash the captain in that case is the one who made the error um but he had something like 3,000 hours I think you were speaking to that earlier, Shanley. Courtney, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say that I, I think that it also mentioned, and maybe this is where some of the technicalities of the article were lost on me. Were they on one of the um, carriers that they had not been fully trained on yet? Is that what I read correctly? I don't believe so. Um, they had, they were flying an aircraft that was new to them, but they had met the legal requirements for training on that aircraft. Okay. I just had, I I know that part of the article had mentioned that several 
when they had gone in and done the investigation, um, several of the training requirements for that new aircraft hadn't even been remotely met, even though they had reported that they were done. So yeah, I, I remember reading that too with with the new uh, with that new aircraft that they were flying. It seems like the staff uh, they weren't up to speed with uh, how the aircraft operated. Right. So I thought that that could have contributed to it. Um, um, I didn't necessarily think that the I don't I didn't think feel like the having more flight time would have helped out, especially because um, they were also saying that there were some maintenance issues with the plane that um, you know weren't taken care of. So that has really you know no bearing on how many flight hours a person has if the plane is um, due for maintenance and it's, it's not getting like a regular maintenance schedule. Okay. And I generally agree. Um, you know, we used to say that, you know, 1,500 hours of experience or 1,000 hours of experience didn't matter much if it was the same hour over and over again um, versus 1,500 hours of diverse experience. Um, and Another question for you. Sure. Like maybe, and you could probably help me out as the subject matter expert on this. Um, I was thinking that with 1,500 hours, um, that would probably be about 30 hours a week. Um, and, and I don't know how the schedule goes for a pilot, but it is, is that, uh, I, you know, I understand that there's delays and cancellations, but, uh, you know, 30 hours is less than a regular 40 hour full-time schedule. Is, is that again, like how does the normal schedule for a pilot usually work out? So I would say that, um, that this also, um, it can be difficult to compare pilot um, pay scales because you'll say that like a pilot makes, we'll say $30 an hour, but a normal person works 2000 hours over the course of a year or 2,100 hours over the course of a year. Uh, but a pilot is limited um, by regulation. Um, it's been a little bit since I've studied those regulations. I, I'm sorry. I don't remember exactly what they are off the top of my head, but it's around a thousand hours a year is the most that you can fly as a commercial pilot. And generally, um, when I was flying, um, I think the most I flew in a month was like 110 hours. And I also had a month where I only flew four. Um, it's very variable depending on what, what your schedule is, um, to get 1500 hours of flight time as a commercial pilot, um, as a, for working for, for an airline, um, you're talking, you know, a, a, at least a year and a half. However, um, this 1500 hour rule means you have to get that flight time before you even get that job. So if you're working as a flight instructor or you're flying skydivers or something like that, which are jobs you can still do with just a commercial pilot certificate in 250 hours, um, you could be, you know, two years, three years, d depending on, on the nature of the jobs that you are able to get. Um, very few people would be able to rent an airplane for, you know, for a thousand hours. Um, they're, they're kind of expensive. Um, Last question I had prepared, and we are coming up on about where we were aiming at for time for the discussion, so that's good. Um, the author suggests that there are serious uh, economic costs to the airlines because of these 1,500-hour rules. Um, do you think that's excessive, and is it right to put a dollar value on safety? I will cold call somebody if I have to. <laughs> Courtney. Well, I, oh, go ahead, Naila. No, I was going to say it's 
Absolutely. I mean, bottom line, you, you can't put a, a dollar price on safety. You can't. And I do believe that the government should regulate airlines. Because as Courtney said not that long ago, that they're looking at their bottom line. And I don't really trust them having the autonomy to ensure that I'm going to be safe. Okay. Courtney? I was going to say, I think we do put a, a dollar value on safety, whether or not we should. Um, I think we have, and we see that in the forms of, you know, if you have an unsafe act, what the violation cost is, or if you get in a car accident, um, there is a dollar value to a life. Um, but whether or not that's right is, I think, a completely separate question than, than how do they decide what that dollar value is. Um, it, from a user perspective, it's so hard to say that any cost should ever be seen as excessive if my life is at stake. But um, I, I don't know how you can... Um, have a system that operates if there's extreme safety costs that are um, in place? Would that make it then um, ineffective to maintain an airline? And Shanoi, you've seen it at the airport. Uh, what's your opinion? Well, I do agree. I mean, I don't think that there is a cost that you can put on safety. It's, but again, especially especially with how much people travel and, and, just, and not even just travel, but um, you know, just thinking about uh, the cost of shipping goods and globalization and things like that. Um, I do think that when you put that onus on companies, it's, they then pass it on to the consumer. Um, so I, I don't know. Um, I, I do think that if, you know, the government, if they would like to regulate, you know, they should help to subsidize and, and reading the article, it sounds like they do. Um, at least, and also just going off the experience I have working at the airport, I know that, um, the local governments would subsidize um, the airlines that were in there to keep them coming in there so that, you know, business travelers could travel very easily or someone at the convenience of going out of Harrisburg, they could. Even with the subsidies, it's still very expensive to fly out of Harrisburg. I think Courtney was saying that she had a friend that was flying out of Harrisburg. I was like, oh my gosh, is your friend rich? Because it's like so expensive to fly out of Harrisburg. So, um, I, I don't, I mean, I, I don't know if there is the right or wrong answer to this. I guess it just depends. Like if you are someone from the industry, you would, you know, say that, you know, of course we definitely take the safety of our passengers into consideration, but we do also have to take into consideration our bottom line. Um, but also if you are a person who, um, you know, lost a loved one, you know, there, there's no price that you can put on that. So I, I don't, I don't know what the answer to that question would be. Okay. And I don't know that I have anything useful to add on top of that. Safety is very important, and I don't want I, I don't want somebody to compromise uh, my safety for the sake of a profit. But I do want to travel by air as well. So uh, there's certainly a balancing act to be done. All right, um, and with that, we will close. Thanks again to our panelists, uh, Courtney, Shanley, and Naiva. And audio post processing will be by Mohammed Salim. See you next time.